you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. 1 Peter 2, 18-25 Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. G'day, my name's Koi. I'm the associate pastor here, if you haven't met me before. And I wanted to start off today with a question. When have you felt hard done by? Like really treated unfairly? A recent example I can think of is actually from my wife, Lena. Just a few weeks ago, we had an awesome church social out at Yarra Gardens. If you weren't there, we'll have more, so come along next time. Uh, But I got there ahead of time to set up the barbie. And I parked in a permit zone as I unloaded the gear. Uh, I I had intended to move my car, but I had totally forgotten uh, that my car was there as church folks started rocking up uh, and started arriving. Uh, Little did I know that my wife saw my car parked there, so she parked in front of me thinking, oh, it must be all good then. Also in a permit zone. A few weeks later, she would receive a beautiful, crisp parking fine, and yet I never got one. She reminds me almost every day how unfair this is. She demands justice. She's always saying, why didn't you get one too, Koi? This is just straight up injustice. Why do bad things happen to good people? And I have to remind her, Lena, we have the same bank account. Why do you want me to get a ticket? It's it's not a good feeling when we're on the wrong side of injustice, is it? Well, for Lena and I, we were both in the wrong, realistically, so it really wasn't that unfair. But in all seriousness, I'm sure for all of us, we've had occasions where we simply knew that we did the right thing, and yet we were treated harshly, unfairly, unethically. For some people, they've even suffered, been punished for doing what was right. See, we've been in the letter of 1 Peter over the past month now, and we've seen how Peter has encouraged his Christian readers that they are elect exiles, outcasts to the world, but chosen by God. That they're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And as such people, what's core to how they live is that they are a people who proclaim the excellencies of him who called them out of darkness into marvellous light. See, what Peter has done has set the foundation for what he would go on to say in the next few parts 
that as verse 11 of chapter 2 says, believers are aliens in this world, sojourners whose goal is to live such a life that people would glorify God, that Christians are to live in a way that shows God to all those around them. And so what Peter does after that exhortation is give specific examples of what true Christianity looks like in their current context how to specifically live as an elect exile in the hostile world and society that they're a part of. And Peter explores this through breaking it up into three parts. So last week, we heard Peter encourage how Christians are to be active servants and live in relation to the state and governing authorities. Next week, we'll hear how to live as one uh, when a believer has an unbelieving spouse, both complex situations. Today, We're in another tough situation for the Christians listening as Peter shares how to live as a true, a radical Christian as a servant or as translated, a slave to a master. It's a unique yet relevant appeal from Peter, one that would have challenged the reader then and can just as much challenge us hearing today. See, reading the passage, I suggest today that we see three things. We see one, a faithful servant we see a faithful suffering, and we see a faithful saviour. See, as we begin, when we hear words like servants, slaves, masters, naturally, I'd imagine a lot of questions arising for us as we sit here. Slavery doesn't really uh, paint for us a positive image, does it? And that's understandable considering what we've seen all throughout history, and especially more recent history the wicked race-based human chattel slave trade, the transactional dehumanising institution of sex slavery, institutions where a person is seen as property, not a human being, property owned by their master. Slavery is inhumane, callous, unjust. And so one of the questions that often arises when reading our passage is, is Peter really telling Christian slaves to be subject to this sort of slavery, to simply submit to this. Like imagine if if an African-American or a Thai sex slave were to read this passage, it would be understandable for them to conjure up a variety of emotions and reactions that they'd likely find this passage to be extremely challenging to grasp, let alone uphold. And that makes sense considering how the sinfulness of man has brought about such evil institutions as slavery, which has affected many people in deep, traumatic, painful ways. But while we remain sensitive to those deeply impacted by such evil, we ought to do our best to read this passage in the lens of the context it was written, a first century context. See, when Peter uses the word servant here, Rather than using the common word in Greek, douloi, which means slaves, instead he uses the Greek word okotai, which specifically refers to household servants. And this is quite a significant thing to know, because in an ancient first century context, slaves and masters were quite commonplace in regular society. The Greco-Roman world was one where slaves would range from those in slave labour, you know, building things, tending to the land, But slaves could also be physicians, teachers, actors, musicians, managers, secretaries, stewards. 
Unlike the tragic history of American slavery where masters disallowed education for their slaves, in the Greco-Roman world, there were masters who encouraged their slaves have an education to better serve them in whatever field they were in. See, Roman slaves were generally well-treated by their masters as they held important positions in society. It seemed in those times that slavery was more based on economics. And you could see, you could see that as all the work of Rome was done by slaves. See, theologian William Barclay says, to understand the real meaning of what Peter is saying, we must understand something of the nature of slavery in the time of the early church. In the Roman Empire, there were as many as 60 million slaves. Slavery began with Roman conquest, slaves being originally mainly prisoners taken in war. In very early times, Rome had few slaves, but by New Testament times, slaves were counted by the million. So knowing this, it was radically different, a radically different picture of slavery in the first century. It was likely that many, if not most, of the people in the churches listening to Peter's writings here would have been slaves which is why Peter refers to a specific slave type in our passage here, the household servant whose job was to care and for the more menial responsibilities of a master's home. But while slaves may have fared a lot better in those days, what we can gather from our passage still is that this didn't mean that they were always safe because these verses still refer to unjust masters, masters who could even cause suffering and even beat the household slave. So what this tells us is that even though this first century institution of slavery was radically different to the ones we likely think about from more recent history, it was still subjugated to cruel slave owners, trodden on servants, unjust practice. Even with those better off slaves who were doctors, musicians, stewards, they were still slaves owned by a master. See, the institution of human slavery itself was still not a good thing. It was still created by man, which stemmed from our sin. So the question often asked, and likely what you're thinking is then, why isn't Peter criticising or advocating for the abolishing of it? Why is Peter saying to the household servants, the household slaves, to continue submitting to their masters as slaves, when instead Peter could be saying, don't listen to them and let's overthrow this evil institution. And it's a great question to have, great question. And I think it's helpful if we understand a few things. First, we have to remember that for these apostle writers, you know, Apostle Paul, Peter here, they were writing at a time where the early church was a, a fledgling new church amidst this massive Roman Empire. So you have to imagine that these small young churches would essentially be fighting against the culture and consensus of the large Greco-Roman world, which in reality meant that the very small, that if the very small early church, less than a percent of the Roman population, tackled this gargantuan institution of slavery head on, it would have been hopeless, impractical, doomed before it began, a tiny minority with little influence on social structures. Second, people often ask, then why doesn't the Bible condemn or criticise the practice? Why does it seem like the Bible and New Testament writers are silent on the issue? 
See, we have to do our best to remember that the New Testament are a collection of writings and letters written to address readers in their situations that they were in, that they lived. It meant it would not have been pastoral or or of practical relevance to the audience. See, theologian Thomas Schreiner says, railing against slavery will not be of any help to ordinary Christians for the dissolution of slavery was out of the question in the first century. So thinking about it as a whole, it seems that Peter's movement of Christians were already a despised minority within society, exiles within a a delicate social situation. What that means is abolition of the, the entire institution of slavery was barely even an option in first century discussions of social ethics. Hence, we don't get much anti-slavery dialogue in scripture. But while not so much a frontal attack, I think in a more subtle way, the New Testament actually does seek to change it. Look at the book Philemon, chapter 1, verse 10 to 16, which says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. See, Onesimus was a slave who escaped Philemon, who Paul converted to Christ. And Paul sends his letter back to Philemon with the, with the words, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. How valued Onesimus is to Paul to be called his very heart, that Paul sends back this once slave Onesimus as his lo- own loved one in Christ. Encouraging, uh, encouraging Philemon, his master, to take him in no longer as a slave, but as his beloved brother, as one who is valued, honoured, respected, loved. See, it's clear here that Paul had in mind the types of relationships that will, from the ground up, break down such institutions as slavery. It wouldn't make sense for somebody transformed by the gospel to hold on to what Paul says here and continue keeping on the slave order. Paul would even go on in Ephesians 6 to say that Christian masters ought to stop threatening and treat their slaves as equals for they themselves too are slaves of Christ. See, what Paul was doing was sowing the seeds here that would effectively take down the institute of ancient slavery. Seeds that would become the basis for later political efforts by Christians. William Wilberforce, a 17th century British politician and philanthropist, would become one of the earliest leaders in the movement to abolish the human chattel slave trade. In one of his famous statements, after long questioning and prayer, William said, God had set before me two objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of morality. William would embrace the anti-slavery cause and he admitted it was because of the direct effect of embracing the Christian worldview. 
For most of his life, William would be devoted to lobbying the governments of other nations, even the US, actively pursuing the end of slave trading, playing a huge part in its fall. See, the example of William Wilberforce is the great reminder that the beautifully freeing truth of of the gospel brings about societal change from within. It is the hearts of people who are properly transformed to be like Christ that makes notable impacts on the ways of the world. Basically, what I'm trying to say is that Scripture isn't silent on issues on the issue of slavery or hides from such societal issues, but rather what we see through the Bible and its writers such as Paul or from our passage here today, Peter, is that these faithful servants knew the most effective and best way to affect change in society was through people knowing the gospel. See, theologian Karen Job says, the call to follow the crucified Messiah was, in the long run, much more effective in changing the unjust political, economic and familial structures than direct exhortations to revolutionise them would have ever been. It was an inside job, an inward transforming of hearts through the good news of Jesus that leads to a Christ-shaped outward transforming of the world and its future. Which leads us to why we get the words here from Peter to the Christian household slave. Peter had just talked about who a Christian believe, who a Christ believer is, one changed wholeheartedly by the gospel. They were now an elect exile, chosen a priesthood, a holy nation, called to live in service to the Lord. And so what that means for the lowest members of society is that they be subject to their masters, not only to the good, but even to their unjust masters. Here Peter is describing what it means to be a faithful servant as it applied to the slaves of the time. People working in all sorts of jobs, much more than we might imagine and much better off than the slaves of recent history and yet still not their own master, still under the authority of someone else. Peter was saying to them, be subject to your masters, whether good or unjust, with all respect, which for many would sound extremely hard to do. I think the reality is for most of us is that if we were treated unfairly by somebody, if we were truly on the end of something unjust towards us, we will find it awfully difficult to treat the perpetrator with respect. So let's look at this word respect. Because if we were to look at the word, the original Greek word, we'd actually see that there was a lot more to it than the simple words with all respect. See, the word it uses, the Greek word is phobos and is actually rooted in the word fear. And it's a word that's often used when referring to fearing God, a reverence of the Lord. So what that means is a majority of commentators of this passage have suggested that a more natural translation of this verse is this, servants, be subject to your masters with all fear of God. See, this isn't a slavish fear where one fears their worldly master, but a reverent fear of God 
whose control extends to every circumstance of their lives, even to their slavery. See, this completely changes how we read verse 18. Instead of understanding it as a, a human-orientated respect or fear, we read it as a Godward-orientated fear. See, one pastor says the slave isn't called to be subject because their master is worthy of respect. They are called to submit to them, whether good or bad, because they fear God and look to God in faith. In other words, the slave doesn't respect out of the worthiness of man, but they respect and submit because of the worthiness of the Lord who has called them into situations beyond their control, in particular their slavery. That is what it is to be a faithful servant. And yet it makes it seem kind of strange for Peter to encourage a Christian household servant to be subject to their master on account of their fearing God. Like if they're to have a reverent fear of God, why the need to submit to masters? What's the connection? So we have to remember that the big unit behind this all was said a few verses back in verse 13 of chapter 2, where Peter said, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. See, Peter was making the general statement to his listeners to be subject for the Lord's sake, essentially saying, fear the Lord, obey him, that your worldly masters, even the unjust ones, may see the one whom you fear and look to in faith. But it's not only Peter who makes the connection between fearing God and worldly masters, but the Apostle Paul does also. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your, fa- your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord, Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So here what the Apostle Paul reminds the slave who has now become a follower of Christ is that they are indeed free in Jesus. But that didn't mean that they could rebel against their masters and live how they wanted to live. It didn't mean that they were no longer bondservants, but rather they've now become bondservants of somebody else. They're now bondservants of Christ. They are now slaves of Christ meaning Jesus is their master. They are to serve him, love him, follow him, live for him. And verse 23 of that 1 Corinthians passage is huge because it says that, it also says don't opt for slavery, which is another evidence of scripture's trajectory of abolishing the institution. But it also says if you are a slave, you're not a slave, but you're free in Christ. He is your master. And so what does that mean? It means obey him, do the father's will. And his will for the first century Asia minor slave was to be subject to their masters out of fear of God. See, Peter's exhortation was quite a radical one for his time. It would have been quite a thing to hear as a Christian slave in the first century. But it does leave us with the question, What does this mean for me today? 
What do Peter's words have to do with a middle-class Melbourneian void of any type of bondage or slavery? See, because first century slaves was more centered on an economic structure of things, many commentators have likened this to our current system of employment. Theologian Scott McKnight says, it is customary to find in this passage advice for the employed. While there are obvious clear differences, and in no means is this the exact comparison between then and now, I think they make a good point in connecting the two. Because whatever we think of the ancient institute of slavery, the reality is that slaves then were in a kind of employment relationship with their masters. It was how they made a living. And so while we may not be slaves per se, for many of us who are employed in a job of some capacity, it's more likely that we too are working under somebody, that we have a boss, a higher up somebody who essentially plays the role of our master with our livelihood in their hands. For example, Pastor Luke is mine. And boy, do I need to hear this passage because man, does he treat me unfairly. (laughs) I'm just saying that because he's not here. No, just the other day, just the other week, he offered me to his car to drive. His car doesn't even have leather seats. What is this? Shocking, right? I'm just kidding, folks. He is an awesome boss. But jokes aside, for those of us here who are Christian, we may frequently deal with non-Christian bosses in our workplace. And for some of us are treated unfairly. Higher-ups who themselves are at times unjustified in their treatment of Christians. In situations as these, Peter's message here is remarkably relevant and needed as we think through how to live as servants of our society, that we're serving God, not just our bosses, that we are to be faithful servants, subject to our masters, good or unjust, for the Lord's sake, in fear of the Lord. And so how do we live as these faithful servants? Peter tells us through faithful suffering. Verse 19 of our passage, For this is a gracious thing, When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So here Peter explains that the slaves will endure sorrow, injustice, beatings, suffering, yet they still submit because it is a gracious thing when mindful of God that when they do good and suffer for it, this is a gracious thing in the eyes of the Lord. Notice that he uses the words a gracious thing twice in our passage, like he's emphasising why they ought to be subject even in the face of injustice and suffering because it is a gracious thing. That's the thing that motivates the faithful servant. What does Peter mean by these words? What does he mean by a gracious thing? We can read a gracious thing as God's favour, God's smile upon his faithful servant who suffers unjustly for his sake, that the faithful servant has favour in God's eyes because they are willing to endure, expressing a, a gratitude, a trust for all that God has done and will continue to do amidst the current circumstance as slaves. See, theologian Robert Mount says, God's grace prompts the human response of gratitude, Apart from this insight, suffering is simply suffering. It becomes a gracious act 
when understood as part of the divine intention for man. See, the faithful servant sees their suffering in the lens of eternity. Part of God's divine plan as they're mindful of God, they see the grace of God revealed in the world when their unjust treatment is met with an enduring trust in the Lord. The faithful servant gains the Lord's favour. But while this gracious thing can mean a present favour in the eyes of the Lord, I think it also has us not just looking to the present, but has us looking forward to the future in how it motivates the faithful servant. In Luke chapter 6, verse 32 to 36, Jesus says this, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Now, what does Jesus' words have to do anything with our passage here today? John Piper points out that the words benefit in Jesus' words, when he says, what benefit is that to you, is the exact same word as a gracious thing. So we can see that Peter learned a lot from what Jesus said when he walked with him on earth, where he, used, where he uses a lot of the same language as Jesus seen here in Luke 6. But what's key here from Jesus' words is in verse 35 of Luke's passage where he says, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. Which inclines us to think that the same words Jesus uses, benefit, a gracious thing, points to the reward. Benefit becomes reward. A gracious thing becomes reward. And so when First Peter talks about a faithful servant's faithful suffering as a gracious thing, it has them not only looking to the present favour of God, but has them looking to the future hope and reward from their suffering. As John Piper says, says it, that good, faithful servant, that good is coming your way. Reward is coming your way for your faithful suffering. And I think Peter supports this as just a chapter later in chapter 3, he says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. In other words, obtain a blessing, a reward for doing good and blessing those who treat you with evil, reviling or injustice. So summing that up, what Peter is encouraging us is that when the faithful servant suffers unjustly, they can keep God's favour in view, that he will bless them for their faithful suffering and it will be all made up to them as reward someday in eternity. This would have been an extremely encouraging message to hear as a first century slave, that their faithful suffering wasn't all for nothing but it was pleasing to God. They gained favour in God's eyes and would be rewarded for it in eternity. Craig Keener, author, says, Peter believes that God is near the lowly and favours the oppressed who have only him to depend on. God pays special attention to those who suffer wrongly. 
Now, it's important to note that Paul says not all suffering comes under this category. Verse 20, he says, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. See, I remember a worker from my mum's old Vietnamese restaurant. She was in a high enough position that she could work the till for my mum. But my mum would eventually find out that she was stealing from it. And so my mum would essentially demote her, graciously keeping her on staff, but she was no longer working anywhere near the cash register. Now imagine that worker took the demotion as faithful suffering, like that she was enduring this for the Lord's sake. It would seem silly, right? Because she was stealing. She was obviously doing something wrong. Yet how often do we do the same? Where we feel hard done by, where we're on the painful end of how we're treated and feel like that is so unfair, yet our treatment was a consequence that came out of our own sinful actions. I know it's happened to me a lot more than I'd like to admit. And Peter is saying, this right here is not faithful suffering. This is not the gracious thing that God shows his favour upon and rewards his servant. No, but real faithful suffering is one, is, is one when you do good, when the faithful servant does good. And why would a slave suffer by the hands of their master if they're submissive and obeying to a T? Well, Peter is referring to when the unjust master perceives a good deed as something they didn't like and acts unfairly towards them. When the faithful servant does good, yet the master regards it as bad. This is the faithful suffering that Peter is referring to. See, Peter's encouragement is for the slave who is willing to suffer for the Lord's sake, even if their master deems them as insubordinate for doing a good thing. Like imagine the slave wholeheartedly fulfilling their duty, asked of them by their master, yet they are mismanaged by their master and blamed for it unjustly. Like the boss who doesn't acknowledge you for the overtime work that you put in and instead questions your work ethic. Or the supervisor who openly mocks you, for, mocks you to your team about you going to church on Sunday instead of being out with your team. See, in each of these examples, the temptation is there to retaliate, to threaten, to revile in return, not endure the unjust suffering. It can make us feel powerless, degraded, tempted to get even, to bring about our own justice. Maybe we get even by not doing our best work for that project we're supposed to do. Maybe I'll just do it so-so. Or we speak behind our supervisor's back to our colleagues. Or maybe we'll plan a screaming match with the higher up in front of a large crowd so everyone can see. See, Peter exhorts the faithful servant to endure. Endure it for the sake of the Lord, in fear of the Lord, that you may gain favour from the Lord. Faithfully suffer, knowing that your suffering in doing good does not go unnoticed but is seen by the one, the only one, who truly matters. I think Peter's call is a challenging one to hear for us as Christians today, to endure. But perhaps what may be even more challenging is navigating when to endure. When to know that it is indeed 
faithful suffering because our doing good is actually good. See, I remember someone from our ter- church, a teacher, once telling me how at her public school, what was required from her from the yearly curriculum was a project, was her, her to lead a project with her students based on who a student admired most from the gay community. And as a Christian, this didn't sit right with her. So with great boldness, she spoke to her higher up and said she wasn't comfortable doing this, potentially risking discipline from her coordinator, risking discipline from the school. Now, thankfully, her coordinator actually respected her beliefs and allowed the changes. Now, I just love how this teacher responded here because I think her actions actually did good in the eyes of the Lord. And she was willing to endure the suffering that would come from her doing good from her supervisor who could have so easily acted unjustly in that moment. But I would also imagine that not every Christian in this teacher's position would do the same. And some would even suggest that submitting and doing good in that situation for the sake of the Lord would be to go on with that project, perhaps to keep a bridge open between a teacher and their boss to be a witness in their life. So for the faithful servant, this leaves us asking the question when doing good, when do we stand up and when do we submit? And it's a good question to ask because there will be plenty of situations where a Christian may see doing good as different to how another Christian sees it in the context of being subject to a master. And I think this is a question that has to do with the matter of conscience. As I said earlier, there's, there's a motivation that comes in faithful suffering. Motivation, that is, it is a gracious thing to endure. And so each believer will have a motivation of the heart to, to do good and suffer for the sake of the Lord. But while the motivation remains the same, a Christian might respond to unjust treatment a certain way on one occasion and another way on another occasion. Why I say that is because I think of something like the Apostle Paul, for example, who in Acts chapter 16, he silently endured an illegal beating for the Lord's sake. And yet in another instance, in Acts 22, Paul stood up and protested in a way as to prevent a beating. Or in Romans chapter 14, where Paul talks about one eating meat with good conscience, while another can't eat meat with good conscience. See, I think here in our passage, when Peter says in verse 19, to be mindful of God when enduring faithful suffering, he means that our doing good is in accordance with a clean conscience before God. That a faithful servant in their suffering is desiring to please God. Determine in their heart that their suffering from doing good is indeed pleasing to the Lord, which is why we may get different causes of action from another faithful servant, as their actions, while different, are dictated by their conscience towards God. Personal convictions in the lives of faithful servants. See, I think there are times where one's conscience towards God in doing good calls them to stand up, to disobey their masters, for they see a call to not let evil prevail. While at the same time, for another, their, con- their conviction is to, as faithful servants, endure as a matter of conscience before God. 
See, Pastor Bob Deffenbaugh says, righteous suffering, suffering that is pleasing to God and finds favour with Him is suffering for doing what is right. Suffering patiently endured and suffering endured for the sake of a good conscience before God. And so the same question is asked, how do we know when to submit and when to resist? There's really no easy answer for this. No one size fits all response. Because honestly, we frequently don't know when. Which is probably why we can get such varied responses from different Christians. But what that ought to do for us, for all of us that hears that, is remind us of the importance of seeking God's wisdom in every circumstance. Not our friend's wisdom, not our own convictions, but God's wisdom in every circumstance. That God, that we can seek his counsel from his word in regards to that unfair work situation. That we can pray for understanding as we seek and we ask God directly to help change us. That we can ask his spirit to open our eyes and hearts to be faithful servants no matter the unjustness. How important it is to seek him in every circumstance. But the best thing we can do, and Peter ends our passage with this amazing assurance, is that as faithful servants called to endure a faithful suffering, we can look to a faithful saviour. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. To hear all throughout our passage today that we are to endure suffering for doing what is right, it's not an easy thing to do. If it were left to us, how hard it would be, pretty much impossible to treat those who mistreat us how we'd like to be treated. How challenging it is for us to not want to retaliate, to revile those who revile us. And yet, to endure such suffering, this is our call as believers. A call that was also for our Lord. Peter helps the faithful servant by pointing to the faithful saviour who suffered unjustly, yet patiently endured. Jesus, who was without sin, no deceit from his mouth, the only one that could ever walk this earth and say that he was truly innocent, would fulfill his call as our faithful saviour, to suffer innocently for our salvation. Beaten and mocked, he endured. Hated and spat on, he endured. Punished, suffered and killed, he endured on that cross. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Peter 
tells the faithful servant that we can cope with our suffering. We can cope with our suffering because we have a saviour who endured for us all the way to his death. When we're accused, when we're threatened, treated unfairly, cop injustice by our masters, we remember that Jesus took that all. In fact, he took it all, that it was our sin, our deceit, our corruption, our unjustness that put his body on that tree. But it was his faithfulness, his power, his love, his grace that saved us from sin and death, that we may live in righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. To the faithful servants who have found salvation in Christ, the cross now becomes the pattern of our lives. Because Jesus faithfully suffered for our salvation, we are called to faithfully suffer for his sake, that glory may be his, that our masters, supervisors, bosses, colleagues, family, friends, everyone may see clearly who Peter is identifying here, the true suffering servant of Isaiah 53, that they may see him and worship him. Theologian Job says, because Peter's readers want God in Christ to be glorified, they are asked to submit even to unjust suffering because, as Christ himself has demonstrated, this is the way to break the world's ways and perhaps one day bring unbelievers to praise and glorify God themselves. What a privilege it is that we haven't been given a hypothetical, but a real and perfect example to follow Jesus himself. And so as faithful servants, we follow our faithful saviour into faithful suffering, but not merely because he was modelled a way of life for us, but because he has endured all this sorrow, all this injustice, all this pain, all this suffering for us and our salvation. Unlike Jesus, our faithful suffering will not redeem anyone, but what it will do is serve his plan, his call for us. So do good and endure suffering for the Lord's sake and in fear of him. Let's pray together. Lord God, you are almighty. You are so good. Father, we see the injustices around the world all throughout history and what sin has done to mar this world. Lord, we see how there's just so much injustice in not just the workplace, but we've seen all through the history of slavery, the institutions that have been brought up, Lord, all stemming from our sin. And yet we need not feel hopeless, Lord, because you have given us the greatest love that you could give, giving us your own son who came down here and suffered as the truly innocent one and suffered for all of us, for all who may put their faith in him, that we may know that we have a suffering Lord who gives us life. So, Father, as we go out these doors and we 
we walk out knowing that there is just so much injustice out there in our own uh, uh, situations and own context, Lord. May we look to the only one who has given us a hope that we know that this uh, faithful suffering does not go unnoticed, but you see it all, Lord. May we be faithful servants. Help us. May your spirit help us along the way. We thank you that we have the greatest example, the greatest redeemer in Jesus, our faithful saviour. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.